Well, thank you for those of you who have prayed for me and my witnessing opportunities. I went and got another load of wood this week. And I got to get a little bit farther. I got to share my testimony and find out uh, this gentleman's background and invited him uh, to come. And I'm planning on going back and getting another load, just one little one little uh, scratch at a time till we till we get there. The Lord has really uh, uh, burdened my heart uh, for Him. So, um, praise God. Well, I, I ran across a list of strange laws this past week that are on the books in several states. And I wanted to share them with you as an introduction to, to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Did you know in Indiana, you're not allowed to attend a movie. These are laws. You're not allowed to attend a movie within four hours after eating garlic. That, somebody was pretty smart, actually, whenever they put that one together. In Iowa, these are actual laws on the books today. In Iowa, a man with a mustache is forbidden from kissing a woman in public. Now, I have no idea what the mustache in public has to do with it. Here's another one, real law. Marriage between cousins is against the law only if they're younger than 65 in Utah, not West Virginia, in Utah. But I did find in Nicholas County, West Virginia, a preacher telling jokes from the pulpit can be fined. Still on the books. You're not allowed to use humor in the pulpit at in Nicholas County, West Virginia. Cleveland, Ohio, there's a prohibition against women wearing patent leather shoes in public lest they show their toes to men. I, I, I'm not, I don't know, I just, some, it's just speechless on some of them. I mean, there are several others, but I doubt any of them are enforced because they're, they're out of date and, and even absurd, except maybe for the cousin one. Um, I would say, though, if we put together a list of rules and expectations and unspoken laws in some of our churches today, we might find some things even more absurd. Most of those religious regulations aren't written down anywhere, but we still attempt to keep them, and, and we expect others to keep them uh, as well, and they, they aren't funny. Extra-biblical rules, anything added to the gospel, defaces authentic Christianity, and trying to keep them actually doesn't help your spiritual growth. It stunts it severely. Life in Christ can be choked by, by the choked to death by the, the weeds of, of legalism. Now I understand that that's a term that's that's thrown around loosely. Uh, some by don't, who don't even have any idea what the what the definition is. Others who reject standards of of any form. But true legalism is is deadly. Legalism can be defined as a strict adherence to anything other than Christ to gain. Favor with God. It's a, it's a human attempt to gain salvation or prove your spirituality by conformity to a religious list of, of do's or, or don'ts. And the problem is it doesn't work. And it's easy to fall into it because we're all legalists at, at heart. 
because of fear and pride, we all have a tendency to try to boil our walk with Christ or genuine Christianity down to, down to law. Now, we also like to grade on the curve because nobody is able to keep the law, but we like this nice, neat, clean list. And sometimes that list changes based on our, on our circumstances. And what's worse is we, we, we find it very easy to apply that list of rules to, to other people. We have a, a natural inclination to judge others by our own standards. Me, you, everyone. It, it's just, it's just it's part, of, part of pride. We always want to, if we find somebody that we think is doing better than us, or in our mind we evaluate ourselves compared, we either want to be depressed or find some way to, to pull them down. And if we find somebody that's, that's, that we think we're doing better, we, we always want to use them to stand on to prop ourselves up. In essence, as one man put it, we think our sins smell better than other people's. And we have very little tolerance for people who sin differently than we do. Tom Rainer gave a list of six marks of legalism. He said we tend to think others are legalistic, but, but we're not. <laughs> he said legalism is highly contagious. It can spread like a, like a bad virus through an entire congregation. Legalism can take vibrant faith and make it dull and lifeless. It, it evaporates enthusiasm. It, it jettisons joy. It stifles spirituality. And instead of finding freedom in Christ, many believers are, are living with, with great burdens. He said legalism produces self-righteousness and judgment. Legalism makes us narrow and divisive. The, the legalist insists that everyone live up to the standard that they have adopted. In other words, everyone needs to be like me. And when they think this way, they, they miss the delight of, of, of diversity in the church. And I don't mean diversity like the liberals mean it in, in the media. I mean genuine God-honoring diversity, the fact that we are here from different backgrounds and different stages of sanctification, different walks of life, and we are all one and unified in Christ because of the gospel of grace. Legalism makes it impossible. This is probably the saddest. makes it impossible for, for people to see Jesus. There's nothing that pushes people away from Christianity faster than the rules and regulations that front for a biblical gospel. And some inadvertently portray Jesus, Rainer said, as a drill sergeant instead of a delightful sage, Savior. And it's nothing new. Um, at the time of Jesus, Jewish leaders had established 39 clarifications for the Sabbath alone each of those having multiple subdivisions, making over 1,500 prohibitions just about the Lord's day. 1,500 prohibitions just about the Lord's day. Here's a handful. It was unlawful to kill a flea that lands on your arm because that would make you guilty of hunting on the Sabbath. You could dip a radish in salt... But if you left it there too long, you were pickling it and therefore working. These are actual, these are actually actual regulations. You could eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken for working on the Sabbath. 
And then you're hunting. That's right. And it was okay to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you couldn't spit on the ground because if you spit on the ground, you'd make mud, and mud was mortar, and that was work. And you say, that's silly. That's ridiculous. But I wonder how silly some of our unwritten rules would be to people outside of our context. You must wear a long, skinny piece of cloth tied in a knot around your neck to dress your best for God. Think of how odd that would sound to the Apostle Paul. You can play music on a stringed instrument, but only if that stringed instrument is not plugged into electricity. I'm meddling now, aren't I? You can use percussion in worship if you play a really large drum, but not on a small one or a set of small ones. Now I'm really meddling, aren't I? You can't wear open-toed shoes in church if they have a leather strap between your big toe and your second toe, also called flip-flops, because somehow that's unspiritual. If someone was to ask you, what, what does any of that have to do with genuine Christianity, how would you answer them? Well, you couldn't, because it doesn't. So what does authentic Christianity look like? Well, our passage today, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus answers a question from the Pharisees and gives a sweeping condemnation of legalism in contrast to authentic Christianity. And as you stand back and look at it, you're going to see what genuine, biblical, authentic Christianity looks like, the essence of this relationship that you have with Christ. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. We've already read the passage this morning, so I'm going to give you, the, give you the outline. Authentic Christianity, as you're going to see, Jesus is asked a question. It's actually a condemning question. And he answers with an illustration about the bridegroom, the presence of a bridegroom and guests being at a wedding. And then he gives two parables, one about an old garment, sewing a hole in an old garment, and the other about wine and putting it in wineskins to, to ferment. And in that, Jesus will, will teach us what authentic Christianity involves. And in verses 18 through 20, he says authentic Christianity involves instinctual joy. Not joy that is trumped up, but instinctual joy. The king's presence brings joy to the heart, not mourning. So you're, you can't fast. In verse 21, with the, with the parable of the cloth, it brings an unmingled relationship with God. The, the kingdom's arrival, the fact that Jesus is there brought joy, the fact that he was there ushered in the kingdom, and so that arrival brought new ways that are pure and unmingled with the old. And then it also involves uncontainable freedom uncontainable freedom in the gospel. And the kingdom's subjects are free. And they're that way because of a new birth. Now, the way this passage ties into to the one before, last week we saw how Jesus offended religious leaders by making a sinner a new man. 
In the passage before that, they were offended because Jesus said he has the authority to forgive sins. Last week, they're offended because Jesus is a friend of, of sinners. And in this passage, he shows how the gospel that he brings changes everything, even how we relate to God. Jesus makes a new man, and his coming brought a new way of life. And the first thing that he teaches is that it brings instinctual joy. Look at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, that's to Jesus, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, we're not told exactly who asked this question, but it was somebody related to John's disciples or the, or the Pharisees. And then Jesus gives his answer in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, while the bridegroom is present, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in, in that day. So there's two groups. And he sets up the scene by telling us that that they were fasting, and they noticed that Jesus' disciples were not, and they questioned Christ about it. Now, the fast that they were accusing the disciples and Jesus of failing to keep was not something in the Mosaic Law, but they were extra fast, extra biblical days, kind of like those 1,500 additions to the Sabbath. These were extra fast days that the religious leaders had, had set up. According to the law, there's only one mandated fast day. And that's the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. Everyone was commanded that day to fast. The rest of the fasts were to be purely voluntary. They were to come from the heart. But the Pharisees went beyond that one day, and they designed a fast day every Monday and every Thursday of every week. Every Monday and every Thursday they fasted, and they would look disheveled so people would, would know they were fasting. They would parade in this disheveled look to the temple and they would pray and you can hear a pharisee pray on a fast day in luke 18 you remember when when the pharisee and the publican go to the temple to pray you remember what the pharisee prays he says i thank you god that i am not like other men i am not like this publican because i fast twice a week this is one of his fast days and he's gone there to pray and you also remember what Jesus says, who left there justified. It was their system. It wasn't in the Old Testament. It was a showy, public, hypocritical way to put their own spirituality or lack thereof on display. There was no true brokenness over their sin. There was no real compassionate prayer that would be so overwhelming that it would push the idea of eating out of their minds. And that's the way the Pharisees worked. Their relationship with God was their rules. That's who they had a relationship with. They had a relationship with their rules. They didn't have a relationship with God. And some of just John's disciples hadn't transitioned yet from John to Jesus. That's why they're called John's disciples, and they're fasting. Now, they were honest enough to confess their sins, to be baptized, to prepare for the Messiah's coming, but they hadn't embraced Jesus as the Messiah yet. Now, they're farther along than the scribes and the Pharisees, obviously, but they're not in the kingdom. And so they're being used also against Jesus 
Look at these repenting people. They're fasting. Why aren't you and your disciples doing it? And they question him about it. And, and the Pharisees, as they're dutifully observing their traditions, they're deeply disturbed that Jesus and the disciples are not doing this. And I would say what they're stirred up by was what you find in verse 16 and 17 of the previous passage. In fact, not only were the disciples not fasting, they were feasting. They'd just come out of a big banquet with Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, and a bunch of sinners. They're feasting and not fasting, and that outraged the religious leaders. And so Jesus answers them in verse 19. He answers their question. He says, just as it would be unnatural and rude and unheard of to fast at the wedding when the bridegroom is present, it's just as unnatural for his disciples to do that in his presence because he's the Messiah. I mean, the whole purpose for fasting, at least John's disciples, was was your heart toward God. But here's God, and the disciples are right with God, and he's standing right in their presence. You wouldn't go to a wedding. You're invited to a wedding, and you have the reception afterwards, and everybody's celebrating for that. You wouldn't go to that and fast and say, uh, no, I, I don't I don't want to eat. I, I don't want the meal. I'm, I'm fasting for God. You just stay home. But you surely it would be offensive to do that. If you went over to someone's house and they were serving you serving you a meal, you wouldn't say, no, I, I don't want any food. Um, I'm fasting. And the presence of Christ brought joy. Notice that he says twice in verse 19, Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them. And he also says the same thing again. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. They cannot fast. It's not that they choose not to fast. They cannot fast. It's instinctual to be joyful. (laughs) Because they, they understand that Jesus is the Messiah and He's going to pay for their sins. And the presence of, of Christ brought joy, not mourning. And that's what your relationship, my relationship with God should bring because we've been forgiven of our sin. The gospel is the very heart and soul of God's plan. God's plan of redemption. Everything is affixed to it. It's the hub of the wheel. All that came before points to the gospel. All that comes after the cross and the death and the resurrection of of Christ points back to it. All spiritual disciplines, all the law, all that the prophets spoke points to this one great truth that God saves sinners and sinners no longer find fear in God's presence. They find joy because they're forgiven and they know it. It would make no sense. And any time you lose sight of that, you're going to get messed up. The minute that you focus on the means or the method and miss the purpose, you're off track. And that's what the Pharisees and John's disciples had done. They got so wrapped up in their religious system and traditions, they lost sight of why they did them. I think children are very helpful. They're very helpful to adults. Young people are very helpful to us older people. And I would say the reverse is also true in the Bible. Older people are helpful to younger people to grant to give wisdom and others. But, but the reason young people or reason children are helpful is because they always ask that question, right? Well, why? And you sit there and go, I don't, I don't know. I mean, 
How do I answer that? And then, and then you give him an answer, you know, you know, well, because God made the sky blue, you know. Well, why did God do that? And it forces you to think about the essence, the crux, the reason. And when you lose sight of why, let you do anything, it breeds cold, dead religion instead of a joy-filled, life-giving relationship. And Jesus says there's going to be a time for that for the disciples, not cold, dead relationship, but fasting. There will be a time in the future when the wedding joy will end for them, and that's when the bridegroom is taken away, and it's an allusion to his death. He's going to be snatched away from them. That's the, the idea of the, the word. But even then, it's temporary. What does Jesus say in John 14? When the disciples are hearing about him getting ready to die and go away, let not your hearts be troubled, right? Believe in God, you believe also in me. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And what's his comfort to them? And I'm coming again for you. So where I am, there you may be also. So yes, you're, you're going to mourn, you're going to fast for a period of time as my disciples, but that's temporary. Heaven is waiting. And when heaven comes, it will not just be instinctual joy, it will be unending joy. It won't be a ritual Monday and Thursday when the disciples lose the bridegroom. It'll be heartbreak. But until then, the presence of God brings joy that is instinctual. Jesus describes authentic Christianity as joy. Do you have joy? In the parable of the of the, the treasure in the field in Matthew 13, Jesus describes salvation as discovering the gospel and having irrepressible joy. He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, when he discovers that treasure that, that not everybody sees, not everyone knows... When he discovers it, he hides it again, and then in his joy, he goes and sold all that he had and acquires the field. And when your eyes are open to the value of Jesus, joy is the motive that moves us to lose everything, to gain him. He's the greatest treasure that there is. And when our walk lacks joy, it's a sure sign that something's wrong. Now, I don't mean that you walk around like everything's hunky-dory all the time and that you're, you're, you're only a real Christian if nothing ever bothers you. The Bible is full of examples of doubts and depressions and difficulties in life. Read the book of Psalms. But at the very core, what you ultimately come back to is Christ in your relationship with Him. And when you begin to dwell on Him or think of Him, joy is what comes to your heart. Not joy from your circumstances, but joy from, from Christ. And that's the difference between what the Pharisees offered and what Jesus was offering. MacArthur in his commentary said, They were into self-righteousness. He preached grace. They were in denying what that they were sinful, he preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religiosity, he preached humility. 
they were into external ceremony, he preached a transformed heart. They were they held tightly to the old, he offered the new. They loved the approval of men, he offered the approval of God. They had ritual. He offered relationship. I don't know about you, but I don't need more rituals. <laughs> I don't need more do's and don'ts. I need Jesus Christ. I need a relationship with him that's real, that cuts through the 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 junk of this world. So how's your joy? How's your joy meter? Where's it at? If you like it, it may be because any number of things. You may be going through a difficult time, and that may be totally okay. But if you stand back and look and, and find that you don't have it on a regular basis, it may mean that you've added something else to Christ. Something else to the gospel. And when you do, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Look at verse 21. He says it brings an unmingled relationship. Authentic Christianity is instinctual joy. And there is an unmingled relationship with God. Verse 21. No one, he starts with the two parables, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the, a worse tear results. Now, he gives two parables here. And just as the presence of the king brought joy, the kingdom's arrival. Jesus inaugurated, initiated the kingdom. And, and that brought new ways, not old ways. And the first parable that he gives is one about mending an old garment. And the other is about making wine. And he illustrates with this garment the difference that his coming brings by describing a tailoring method that no one would, would use. All the cloth in Jesus' day was was organic. It really was. There was nothing synthetic. It was all natural. Everything that was, was made was made from wool or fiber uh, or hair, and it was woven into fabric. And because it was natural, it had to be, to be washed and shrunk before using it. Have you ever bought something? that you, you tried on and it fit really, really nicely and you didn't pay attention to whether it was pre-shrunk or not and you threw it in the washing machine and it came out about three sizes too small? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here, except it's mending a hole in a garment. You wouldn't sew on a piece of, of cloth that hadn't, been, that hadn't been washed and therefore shrunk. Because it would shrink to nothing. And when that would happen, wherever you sewed it, it would pull. And it would make the hole bigger. Everyone knew that. No one would do that. Because it would make the tear worse. And he says it's the same way in trying to add the new covenant to the old. The arrival of the kingdom brought new ways. And all of the, the laws and the rituals of the Mosaic covenant pointed to the day that the king would come and usher in the kingdom. And he's here. To lay Christ's teaching on top of the Mosaic law was like attaching new cloth to an old garment, and it harmed both. And the Pharisees and their rituals and their ceremonies were like a worn-out garment. And you can't patch holes 
with it with a piece of the gospel because it's incompatible. They don't go together. Jesus didn't come to preach a message to patch up the old system. He came to fulfill the law. He came to replace it all together. And they brought a he brought a new internal law that can't be mixed with old self-righteousness or works or anything for that matter. The your walk with Christ is is an unmingled relationship. It's unmingled with any systems or rules. Now, there may be spiritual disciplines that you have in your life, but but those are voluntary. Those are there to help you with your relationship to Christ. They're They're not an additive to make you right with God. It's unmingled. It's so serious to put anything, to attach anything to the gospel. Paul called it another gospel whenever you do that. And he rebuked Peter publicly when he saw him succumbing to to the whole idea of the Jews and the Gentiles. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 1. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the gospel of grace and are turning to another or a different gospel. That's how serious it is. Not that there is another gospel, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. The danger of adding extra biblical rules and going beyond the text is not just losing your joy, although that will happen. It's actually, it could be losing the gospel. And there are plenty of what people may call Christian denominations that, that have do that do that. I can think of the, the Church of Christ that adds baptism or plenty of others that say Jesus plus something. Yes, it's Jesus, yes it's faith, yes it's grace, but and right there is where it all falls apart. And Paul says that whenever you do that, you're not just just tweaking the gospel. You're changing it all together. You change it because it's pure. And it's undiluted grace alone. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 1, when he's speaking to the Christians that are there, he says, who have bewitched you? He says, you, you began in the Spirit. The Spirit brought a new birth and, and brought you new life and brought forgiveness and brought that joy. Do you think you're going to be perfected now by, by your flesh? No. So let me ask you, as you look at your life, have you added anything to it? As you look at your life, do you find joy? Does your heart beat for Christ? As you look at your life, do you, do you find that you've added anything? It's easy to do. Did you begin as a sinner saved by grace, but, but have now become a self-sanctifying worker? Is the way that you view your relationship with God based on what you do or what you don't do? Is it quid pro quo? Do you feel like that God is disappointed in you whenever you don't do your devotions in the morning? Do you feel like that, that your relationship with God is, 
is, is connected in some way by other things, whatever, it, whatever those things are. I mean, you can put anything in the list. I can remember whenever I was about halfway through my time at, at Red House and I'd already announced my call to preach and, and I had gotten, um, I'd gotten wrapped up in fasting. And I can remember I would, I would just, I had a great desire to be used by God and so there would be a preaching opportunity that would come up and I would fast. And I'd say, man, you know, Lord, I, I really want you to use me. I really want to, uh, to see people come to Christ. And so I'm going to fast and ask you to, to, to do something, to bless the, to bless the preaching time. I think it, it probably started out okay. But then I would, I would fast for a day, and this thought would come to my mind, right? Whenever I was getting ready to stop, this thought would come to my mind, wow, well, you know, well, if I fasted three days, what kind of harvest could God bring if I fasted three days? I mean, the Lord would then really see that I was serious about wanting to see people come to Christ, and surely that, that He would bless that. And so I would fast three days. And then, not long, after the three days, I had this thought. I mean, I, was, I, I remember this vividly. I was in the spare bedroom, and I was hungry. Now, I'm not going to fast. I mean water only, okay? I was hungry. And I can just remember rejoicing that it was over and just giving God thanks for helping me, you know, get through it. And then I had this thought. Well, if you would fast seven days then what could God do with your life? And I remember having this feeling that just came over me, just utter disappointment. I mean, I, I, I'd already planned on the pizza that I was going to buy, what was going to go on it. I mean, I did. I had it all planned out. And then the next thought that came when I got disappointed, wow, how disappointed God must be in the fact that, that here I am. He died for me and saved me from hell, and I'm not even willing to fast seven days. Can you see the error in that? It's what I'm doing. And somehow holding that up to manipulate God to do something even good, like bless preaching or save souls. And I can remember being so broken, and I went to the flea market because Pastor Joe's wife had a, had a flea market place there, and I remember just weeping. And I remember saying to him, you know, Joe, I just want God to bless whatever I do for him. And, and he looked at me and he said, Brian, God's going to bless his work in you because he loves you and because he's chosen you in ministry. Not whether you fast three days, seven days, or 40 days. God doesn't work that way. You know, it wasn't anything profound. But it was like the weight of the world was lifted off of, off of my shoulders. I called Tracy on the way home, and I said, make me some cornbread. I want some cornbread milk, and I'm going to eat it when I get to the house. When you add anything to your relationship with, to God, even good things, even if you're motivated by good things, you're not just off track. You're on a completely different rail line. The gospel frees you from all of that. You get the privilege of God doing His work through you, not you partnering with God as somehow twisting His arm in heaven to, to answer 
Yes, I prayed before I went to pick up the wood. Yes, I pleaded with the Lord to help me that I could share the gospel faithfully. But I did that on the basis because God loves me and God loves this man and I just want to be faithful. It wasn't an arrangement. And the gospel frees you from all that and it actually brings uncontainable freedom. The kingdom brings freedom. But to gain it, it requires a new birth. If you would, at verse 22. Jesus gives the second parable here. And it's about how wine was stored and prepared. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost and the skins as well. And pay attention to this last phrase. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins or new wineskins. New wine into new wineskins. It's a parable about making wine. Now, I know Baptists don't do that, but they did in this day. And Joshua 9 describes the process. And basically what they would do is after they had the juice, it wasn't hyped up with a bunch of sugars and modified to increase the alcohol content, but surely it had alcohol content in it. And they would take an animal hide, usually a goat, and they would make a container out of it. And they would, the neck would be the spout, and they would sew up wherever the, the, the legs were, and how they, they skinned it out, and they would have a big giant pouch. It sounds gross, but it actually worked really, really well. They would fill it with new wine, and they would let it settle. The dregs would go to the bottom, and it would ferment, obviously. And so the skin allowed it to stretch, so it wouldn't burst. And as the dregs fell to the bottom, they would pour it out of that wineskin into another wineskin and let the dregs settle. And then they would continue to do it until it was clear and it was settled and done fermenting. And the most important thing about the process was that the leather that they used was soft and breathable. And it wasn't old and bitter. They would have to throw them away after a period of time. Because if it was dried out leather, then it would crack and break open and the wine would be lost. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And yet he applies it to their relationship with God and spiritual things. And authentic Christianity. Jesus is saying you can't pour the Christian gospel in old, brittle, cracked, dried, useless wineskins of rules and regulations that the Pharisees offered. The new wine of the gospel is is incompatible with the old system, and it's also uncontainable by the old system. The Mosaic Law can't contain the gospel, and it never intended, it was never intended to contain it. Jesus not only brings joy, he brings freedom. And the law is not bad. The law is just substandard for a spirit-indwelt believer. Did you hear what I said? The law is not bad. The Ten Commandments are not bad. They're just substandard. For a spirit indwelt believer. Because of one's salvation. The law is not written on an external uh, uh, plaque. It's engraved upon your heart. It's internal. It's not external. 
And that's far superior to an external code that you have to constantly reconcile yourself to. The law of God for the believer is written on the heart to where you delight in it. And yes, your flesh is strong and takes over at times and you do the wrong things. But just like in Romans 7, Paul says, when I do that, I don't want to do that. And it's not, it's not the, the saved part of me that does that. It's, it's the hangover from the, from the fall. And Galatians 5 tells us that God has set us free from living by that old system. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now think about this. It was for freedom. It was for the purpose of freedom that Christ set us free. He didn't just set us free. He set us free for the purpose to live free. And he's going to explain why. In verse 13 of that same chapter, you were called to freedom, brethren. Why? Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Here's why. But through love, serve one another. And look at his reference to the law. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, or in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, assuming you don't love your neighbor unless you love God. So this is the ultimate crystallization of the law, loving your neighbor as yourself, because you won't love your neighbor unless you love God, and you won't love God unless you have received his love first. And Christ set you free. And that freedom is not to be used for selfish means. It's to be used so that you are freed up to be enslaved to other people. Do you think that the Pharisees with 1,500 things to pay attention to on the Sabbath and all those other things were free to minister to other people? Do you think that's what they were thinking about was lost people? <laughs> they were thinking about, oh, did I, did I step in the wrong place? Did I get too close to, the, you know, to somebody who had been around death, whatever it is? And Paul says the law was like training wheels. It was uh, on a bicycle. It was like the little floaties that you put on the kids in the pool. And before you had the natural ability to ride or to swim, you, you needed it to keep you from wrecking or drowning. But now you can ride and you can swim because of the gospel, because the Spirit indwells you and, and the new covenant has been written on your heart. And now the training wheels and the floaties are a hindrance. And it keeps you from running the race. Can you imagine going and turning on the TV to the Tour de France and watch everybody lined up there and one of the guys is sitting there as training wheels on the bicycle? That's exactly what trying to add the Mosaic Covenant is like to the gospel. You can't swim with floaties on. If you can swim, swim. And that's what Jesus says here. He set us free from the ceremonial pieces and the external trappings. Not so we can sit back on our laurels, but so we can be free to enslave ourselves to others. And in salvation, God's removed the floaties so you can, with unhindered arms, serve others. Now look at how he ends this parable. This is what's most important, I think. He says, but new wine is placed into new wineskins. This parable doesn't just talk about laying the, the new covenant on top of the old. He talks about those who have the capacity to contain or to, to, to hold on to the new covenant. 
Not only is the gospel uncontainable by the old system, those that receive it must be made new to hold it. And the reason that Jesus' message and methods were so offensive to the Pharisees was because they themselves needed to be made new. Not just their system. The problem wasn't just their system. Their system was a problem. But their problem also was their own hearts. They were dead, dry, cracked in heart, and they could not contain the new freedom or grace that Christ brought. And you'll never be able to truly accept grace or be joyful when others receive it unless you've been made into a new wineskin. Because beggars rejoice when another beggar finds bread, but self-made men think the beggar should work for it just like they did. And if you've tasted the gospel, there's nothing sweeter than to be filled with it and to see others taste it as well.